1: making like him move you. a feel move
0: you. him move like you. Of Rank and Review Ghostly Returns. This week, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons and returning guest Matthew Risling are going to look at six films on the subjects of ghosts coming back for more. More than anything else, though, I think this episode is a battle against mediocrity. And whether or not we won or lost, I will leave up to the listener. In typical Rank and Review fashion, you can expect spoilers and coarse language throughout the episode. This is your host and run, Canadian Larry Parsons. Thank you for listening. I'm just rolling. It's just like that. I started recording. So uh, welcome to the 30th episode of Rank and Review, and uh, we're calling this sort of Ghostly Returns. and. Because all of the movies have ghosts and sort of the theme of, uh, returning to face them. There's a lot of sequels, but we also have returning guest, Matthew Risling, and we are returning to the spooky garage in Harris. And uh, also co-piloting special guest star this episode, J. Adrian Cook. Hello. (laughs) This is the sound of my voice. (laughs) Go ahead, do it. What? Say this is the sound of my voice. This is the sound of my voice.
1: Should I say hello too? This this, this is the sound of my voice. Wonderful.
0: A lot of uh, really professional shows do that at the beginning, so I like to have the illusion of being professional. Uh, So again, you chose the list, Matt. This is all your fault. I did not choose the (laughs) list. I made all of the lists, but you chose this list out of many.
1: (laughs) That's not fair to put this on me. (laughs)
0: Uh, you, I was giving you a lot of options, and you heard white noise, too, and were just sold instantly. You needed, you needed closure on white noise. Uh,
1: so as you listeners out there in Radio Land can probably guess, <laughs> we, we've got a batch of treats for you. It's
0: funny, because I, I remember looking at the list and saying, well, this is not a good list of movies, but it'll be fun because it'll be Matt. We'll have fun with it. But I have to say, upon looking at the movies, I think overall... This is a stronger list than we had last time, and that kind of surprises me, because uh, uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect it looking at the titles.
1: Yeah, what I thought, uh, after having seen all of these uh, movies, is that there's probably nothing on this list as bad as anything in the bottom three of the last time I was on the show, and there's nothing as good as anything in the top three so we're we're right here in the middle of this we're studying this mediocrity sandwich. the
0: middle ground <laughs> um and we're also looking at a lot of sequels and we haven't done that a lot and um, i i, I want to look at every aspect of the horror genre and to ignore the sequels i think would be a mistake uh that's where a lot of the criticism uh, comes to the horror genre and deservedly so because Diminishing returns are a, a real thing in the horror genre, and when you have things like *Children of the Corn* going to nine movies, you get some pretty bad yes. <laughs> um, So I think it's interesting. Uh, obviously, we're familiar with the world of white noise, but you said you watched *The Paranormal Activity* four, having no reference to any of the other *Paranormal Activity* movies.
1: No, I have some some understanding that they involve somebody's setting up a camera in the house and then a ghost jumps out at some point. So You're uh, caught up. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I imagine this was fairly typical of the franchise. Although uh, the first one was apparently wildly successful and popular, so maybe it had uh, a little spark that part four had you know, lost <laughs> by this point.
0: Well, again, it's hard to stay fresh for movies in. I guess we should talk about the movies we are going to look at. All of them uh, ghost-themed, um, but like I said with the... Uh, People coming back to face ghosts of the past and um, sequels. We have the classic motion picture, Darkness Falls. <laughs> the we, modern, classic, modern uh, classic.
1: The instant modern classic. Uh,
0: memorable 80s Scarathon Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. <laughs> um, we have the American version of The Grudge 2. We have Paranormal Activity 4. We have White Noise 2, The Light. And last, but in no way least, we have Sometimes They Come Back. Because we need some more Stephen King in this podcast. Actually, I'm surprised we're 30 episodes deep and I haven't managed a Stephen King episode yet.
1: Particularly because there was that time in the early 90s where they were just releasing a Stephen King adaptation to TV like every other weekend. Yeah. Uh, which sometimes they come back it must have been that
0: is right. one in that category yes but because it has the stephen king brand it, it has survived on video <laughs> almost indefinitely apparently there's no movie so shitty with stephen king's name on it that it will not continually be made available to us horror junkies out there. yeah well... uh i guess i should mention the sound we are in a garage with a fire going and a little bit of rain outside so that's going to add to the ambience tonight but uh I think, are we ready to go with some Ghostly Returns? Is there anything else you'd like to say before we get started? Is there a theme that you want to explore in these movies?
1: (laughs) Well, I (laughs) wanted to explore the theme of Ghostly Returns, but you've already hit that, so I think we're good.
0: I've wrecked the show already.
1: Stay in the light, we stay alive. Just walk towards my voice. Come on, it's just three steps.
2: This winter, evil rises. Darkness Falls. Okay,
0: so Jonathan Liebsman, and I hope I'm saying that right, is the director of Darkness Falls. He was uh, made his name. doing a sort of short mini-film to promote The Ring 2 that sort of came sandwiched in between the uh, American release of The Ring and the really terrible sequel that they made of it, subsequently. Um, So he got hired to do this movie, Darkness Falls. And apparently it was a bit of a rocky production, and uh, his first foray into Hollywood was not a very satisfactory experience for him. Happily though, the film performed really well. It made uh, a lot of money, it made more, well more than its budget back, and uh, the only real question is for this spooky Tooth Fairy Ghost movie, for a movie that cost a little and made a lot, why no sequel? Is it possible that they made a movie so lame and unmemorable that they decided not to bother going back to the well despite easy money to be made?
1: Yeah, it blows my mind that this movie made money back. It um, did. It I don't did remember well. hearing about it, so it came and went without uh, me being conscious of it. But who would like this? That's uh, like, what? What's the audience for this? It was rated PG, so maybe they're shooting towards like the twelve-year-old demographic that the don't. The teen
0: like... date movie audiences where a lot of these PG horror movies are really made for. You know, you bring your girlfriend to the theater. She gets scared. You get to cuddle, and it pays off in the end. Blah blah blah. It's an old recipe, but um, in order for that to work, the movie should be suspenseful and/or scary.
1: Yeah, I just cannot see this movie <laughs> leading to cuddling in any way. Uh, uh, and if it's something like you got to see this, I'm really psyched.
0: You gotta, you gotta see *Darkness Falls*. If someone ever says that to you, you should probably think less of them almost directly. Um, the, the plot of the movie actually. Is not without promise is the weird thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this was one of the the real shames about the movie because it it has so much potential. Everything about this movie screams if there had been somebody on set with some some sway or some pull that had any level of competence that (laughs) enjoyed horror movies perhaps or had any idea what they... Should look like or what would work in a horror movie. This could have been a really good one, or at least not as bad as it was.
0: <laughs> well, the the basic premise is it sort of reminded me of sort of the origin story of the Blair Witch. There's a a sort of eccentric uh, woman who uh, did this tradition of giving the kids candy, paying particular attention when they lost their last baby tooth who got mixed up and confused for uh, a murderer and ended up being lynched by the town folks.
1: Well, sort of, uh, you think you're not doing it justice to the fact that every decision made in this movie was wrong. Yes. Uh, we'll come back to The Blair Witch in a second because there's, there's another parallel about how this movie went wrong where another movie went right (laughs) but there are kind of two separate origin stories within this lady's origin uh, because there's the origin story of how she came to wear a porcelain mask which had to do with some sort of house fire so then she became horrific and then this separate unrelated incident where children went missing so they decided to kill her
0: well obviously the ugliest person did it
1: Right, right, but the town already really liked this woman, so just one day they decided to kill her for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, pretty people wouldn't kill their children, clearly. Yeah, I guess that's kind of true. <laughs> I can't I can't <laughs> see a scenario in which that would be the case. Yeah, never mind, I retract that.
0: <laughs> it is true. Uh, I, I think that they might have been trying to stretch this out. Uh, an interesting factoid, as I told you right before we started recording, is that they stretched out the end credit sequence of this movie to 11 minutes in order to sustain feature-length running time. Now, when you're making decisions like that, that's just not for art's sake, right? Um, and if you don't have enough story uh, to to fill 85 minutes, uh, m- maybe you're not ready to shoot yet. Maybe
1: you don't want to roll cameras on this yet. Um, well, I got a really strong sense from the beginning when we get this woman's history or histories in this voiceover that was uh, reminiscent of a Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movie where we just want to get all of this exposition out there. It's like somebody has to make the decision. We need to know who this person is, so should we show them or tell them? Okay, we're going to tell them. We (laughs) can eat up a few more minutes doing that. Uh, It felt really tacked on. Uh, This is where I want to come back to the Blair Witch Project because the Blair Witch Project although I didn't think it was the greatest movie ever, had one of the greatest marketing campaigns, and yeah. and we got to know who the Blair Witch was in bits and pieces online and through this great documentary, and it never sort of forcing, shoehorning this clunky exposition right at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and it's just the difference between somebody that wants to create something interesting or something artistic and people that just want to get this out of the way, I guess. They didn't...
0: Well, the template does, again, it sort of feels like it could have been written into, written by a machine, you know, Uh, a tragic origin story, disfigured old woman, tooth fairy, sort of a fairy tale angle into it. A lot of these things are just sort of thrown, seeing what, what sticks and what doesn't. But, uh... I still think that it's sort of bizarre yeah, that they had enough elements that it shouldn't have sagged as much as this. I don't want to be, like, all about hate for this, too, but there's not a lot of good things to say, but I am going to say this. Stan Winston, light-rate effects man, did the design for the the Tooth Fairy creature, and on its face, it looks kind of creepy, and the way it moves in and out of the shadows and it's adverse to light, like, there is a visual aesthetic there that... that could and almost should have worked
1: <laughs> yeah i agree and i think it actually started off pretty strong for the first uh not counting the clumsy origin story but when the movie actually started with the little kid in his room um you know it was actually doing a pretty good job of building up suspense and it spent maybe five minutes building up a lot of goodwill and then the next 70 minutes or so just trashing it but,
0: I really feel like the the director wanted to make a harder, scarier movie than he was being allowed. I don't know this. This is just me inferring from what I've uh, read. But I know that he followed this up. He got hired to do the prequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) And I think that he was basically working out a lot of his demons (laughs) that he wasn't able to express in this because that movie is fucking dark. And I get the feeling that that was his impulse and that maybe if... uh, he was let, off, let more to do what he intended, that this would actually be a scarier movie and have a little more bite to it. Because what's really frustrating is that there is potential here. The cast isn't great, but they don't, for the most part, loudly suck. There's some weird accent issues. <laughs> in some of the performances you can tell that they're putting on an American accent but uh, that's something that I've just sort of been developing more of an ear for that might stand out more for me than for other people but
1: yeah I didn't I I mean I heard the the American accent things a little bit but that wasn't that wasn't a big deal Um, this had the feeling to me like one of those movies that had a lot of people writing it and rewriting it and there was just no um, there was no concept to it there was there were too many things going on at once,
0: and uh, although we guess we understand the rage of the the, cr- the creature or whatever, we don't really necessarily know specifically why she's got such a particular rage for our main protagonist. And
2: uh, I can answer that. Actually. Yes, uh, he escaped her once. Well, he peeked. You're not su- you're not supposed to look when the Tooth buries in your room, and he saw her. Right. And the same thing happens to the kid. In the in the future, yes. He sees uh, that. And
0: this is the thought that we have not really done service to, but yes, a survivor of a tooth fairy attack. <laughs> 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 <people call> that? <laughs> he survives a tooth fairy attack, but his mother doesn't. He abandons the town, returns years later to have a rekindled love interest? Question mark With a girl he kissed once fifteen
1: Ooh. years ago. <laughs> well, she calls him right. He's living in Las Vegas because they have right. lots of lights in Las Vegas. Uh, and she gets him to return to the town because I guess he had a thing for her still, or (laughs) maybe because he felt um, a kinship with that child that had seen the Tooth Fairy.
0: Um, Yeah, it's very vague. That's the other thing. I I talked to you about this before we we started recording. I was like, I'm a little bit worried about this review for Darkness Fall. A, is because I I don't want to all be about hate, and B, because I've watched the movie twice now, and my memories of it are very, very fuzzy. (laughs) Like... (laughs) There's something really boring about it. Like, for a movie as short as it is, it really does feel like it takes forever in
1: some respects. It certainly does go on. I actually hit a point, I don't know when, maybe about the halfway point, where I started um, to really appreciate how inept it was. (laughs) It was... I mean, I don't tend to watch a lot of those movies that are so bad that they're good, and I never go out seeking them. But it was just so delightfully incompetent that it was hard not to be charmed by it at a certain point
0: it's weird because I'd be tempted to say incompetent but somehow it doesn't seem like the right word for me because technically it's not a badly made film (laughs) and the incompetence sort of comes in like the story beats but not necessarily how they're presented
1: (laughs) well so there are things like you have that very familiar scene with the guy returning to a town and there's a monster killing people, and so they think it's him, and they lock him up for thinking that he's the Tooth Fairy. And he's pleading his case to this other cop that had grown up there, and he 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 says to the cop, think about all the unsolved murders in, in this town, not just lately, but in the last 150 years. <laughs> and then the cop thinks about it, he sort of nods, <laughs> yeah. as if to say, yeah, I guess there really have been a lot of grisly monster murders in the last 150 years
0: yeah yeah right. and uh we don't have that other subplot if they needed more fat to the movie which obviously they <laughs> apparently did why not have that sort of whole the community is aware but repressing it angle played nope they're just stupid yeah they're just
1: stupid and also there's one point i guess the first time in the tooth fairy's history where she decides not to kill little kids but just to just to throw it out there and kill everybody in the town. So she starts flying around the town, looking quite a lot like a a less scary version of uh, Jake Busey from The Frighteners. The
0: death figure, yeah.
1: And she just kills everybody. Hmm. And you think, like, why wasn't she just doing this already? If this is what she wanted to do, why is it now that she just decides to kill everybody that she comes across
0: why establish these rules if you are not going to follow them <laughs> yes again, can uh and that's all a screenplay problem i mean it really felt like they rolled cameras early on this they were, they hadn't cracked the code on the screenplay they had a concept not a story yeah <sighs> i i just feel like i'm jumping up and down on a corpse here <laughs> is there anything else that we need to say about darkness falls have we been suitably mean to it i don't
1: know, like we, well, let's, we've got a special guest, Jeremy, yes. um, any thoughts? I um,
2: saw this movie advertised on TV and on that strength alone I went and saw it in the theatres. And I got exactly what I was hoping for for the first three minutes of film time and then watched it all crumble before my eyes. <laughs> I have a special hate on for this movie. <laughs> It is terrible. I recommend <laughs> never seeing it. Ever. Even... you, I can't believe you watched it again for this podcast,
0: Larry. <laughs> Not a, only did I watch it again, I paid $2.50 for this movie.
1: You're telling it's me. on
0: my wall now. I can choose to watch Darkness Falls at any time. I can just do it. I can just choose to put myself through that. In, In fact, we, I think
1: we should pause the podcast right I just now. I don't want to watch be, it again. Anybody <laughs> into that? And I
2: realized that I saw it a second time with Matt to, to see it. And so I'm, I'm kind of a hypocrite, but now this is actually the voice of experience going out to all you people in podcast land. Never see this movie. <laughs>
0: So, Takashi Shimizu, we're gonna say? I'm sure I nailed that. Uh, the director of the original uh, Grudge film, or, or on was hired by uh, Sam Raimi's production company to do the sequel. He also directed the uh, original remake, and uh, it seems like a re- pretty good thing, they're, 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 they're giving real credit and faith to the source material's creator. Bring it over here, we want to bring it for our audience, so uh, that would seem to be a good idea. Unfortunately, for fans of the podcast, who remember uh, Jeremy and I, or J. Adrian Cook and I reviewing uh, The Ring 2, in which they hired the original director of The Ring, to a very dissatisfying result. Um, All of this leads to the important question, and this is the question that I think most people think of when they think of these grudge movies. Would you sleep with Kyoko. The
1: evil, vengeful, grudge spirit. Um, this is before or after she becomes an evil, vengeful, grudge spirit. i
0: put that in your court.
1: I, I would say yes. <laughs> yes.
0: I, I don't know. There's something sexy about that evil bitch. I don't know what's going on with
1: it's, it's me. this <laughs> scene where somebody's hiding under the blankets and then her evil face peers out from under the blankets and think like, looks like she's just about to be generous. So, that's nice. <laughs> uh, awesome.
0: These movies are kind of review-proof in some way in that they are a little bit anti-story. And I don't know if this is just being faithful to the sort of Asian horror thing where uh, a bunch of inexplicable, horrible events happen and we just sort of take it in and move on to the next scene. But the basic idea of the Grudge series is that this evil spirit, having suffered a terrible fate, is such a bundle of horrible emotions that anyone who encounters it sort of catches this curse. It's like this... uh, like deadly chain letter if you if you see this ghost you're fucked and
1: if you you don't even have to see the ghost like the ghosts well in the original anyway the ghost i think in the remakes uh the ghost just chooses you so you may or may not see it but you're fucked yeah just once it decides you're fucked then you are
0: So this grudge 2 is a fairly ambitious thing in that there's kind of three stories that we have happening sort of simultaneously. Uh, I think that the most important one involves this character of Aubrey who's come to see what's happened to her sister who played by uh, Buffy, Sarah Michelle Gellar, who was the star of the first movie and who's now been hospitalized having attempted to burn down the house that was haunted and presumably gone mad. So she's there to collect her sisters, see what happened and what's going on. And there's a bunch of peripheral, tangential characters. How important they are, I guess we can discuss. But the basic premise the ghost is seen, terrible, scary shit starts to happen.
1: Yeah, and there's some. Um, it took me a long time to figure out what was going on, because there's a storyline that's going on in America mm-hmm. uh, where the. Yeah, this American family, and we never really know who they are or why they're in the movie. Um, I mean, their story is no no better or worse than anything else, and I don't even know that I think it's necessarily a weakness that it doesn't get brought in because so much of uh, this movie is just about being disjointed and disorienting.
0: And that's the thing. Typically I would say, well, it was kind of frustrating and that there was no real through-line thread to be followed, and that these three tangent storylines actually find out, I think, are in different timelines, although not having that spelled out originally adds confusion to an already (laughs) confusing story.
1: Yeah, we find out at the end that they're going on in different timelines, and I guess it's a big reveal, but it's a big reveal that isn't, not really that interesting, or it didn't have to be there, but it didn't not have to be there. Right.
0: Um, What I will say is that there's a few okay and bizarre boo scares in it. Um, This evil Kyoto ghost seems to be able to show up, pop out of literally anywhere. Uh, I remember memorably under a blanket she pops up underneath and out of a a bucket of uh, chemicals in the in the black room and uh, guys developing photographs Um, so she has this ability to pop up and boo in places that we're not used to seeing things pop up and boo and I think that sort of might be the thing about the Juan grudge franchise is that you know there's gonna be a boo but you don't necessarily can't, you can't really predict what corner of the frame it's going to come from.
1: Yeah, I mean, the original was, uh, I think it was a made-for-TV movie in Japan. Uh, and I think what was going on with it, uh, it was wildly popular and had nothing really resembling a story at all. Right. Uh, and it was basically these little maybe five or six-minute vignettes of people in places and then a ghost coming out in interesting and creepy ways so there was it had low stakes as far as the story goes but it was interesting to watch just to to see how this ghost would pop up or you know and I
0: think that's what keeps me a little bit at arm's length from the grudge movies is that I'm kind of a story guy so what I will say about the grudge too and where I think it actually may have an edge on the grudge one, and we're talking about the remakes here, of course, uh, is that I feel like at least one of these three stories, uh, all of them really do, but one has a fairly conclusive ending to it that tells me something about Kyoko and this grudge curse. And
1: uh, I didn't get that in the first movie, and it frustrated me. Uh, okay, so I, I'm perhaps a little bit confused about this, because the ending-ending... Well, I guess there were sort of three endings. Ending. Correct, yes. There was one where Aubrey finds out what it was like to have been Kyoko... Kyoko?
0: She basically relives Kyoko's death, and she dies during it. But right? what was
1: the point of that? What did we learn that we didn't, didn't learn in the very first scene in the movie when it said that this guy killed his wife, um, and killed the kid and then killed the cat for me it was
0: that her neck was broken and she was still alive laying there watching the rest of it happen oh okay uh, that, that sort of as she was dying she saw the rest of her family destroyed which is sort of what what cooked this whole evil anger within her which became this curse but not having that in the first movie it was really just a series of inexplicable and creepy events and I didn't know I didn't know how to sit on it. This but did sorry like,
1: to interrupt. Did not like the fact that she watched it was an interesting addition to it. But it's not like you were saying I could never believe that this woman would become a vengeful ghost right. because she got murdered. Oh, she wasn't dead for a while. Oh, now I get it. Right? right. There's no like aha moment where this explains everything.
0: Oh, well, uh, but I wanted to talk about that moment as Aubrey's laying there reliving this and dying, uh, and Kyoko comes up to her. It's a little bit different than the other one. she doesn't seem aggressive when she comes up to her that last time it's almost like she's meeting Aubrey and sort of saying see this is why this is me and for the first time ever uh she's not 100% just evil to me she, uh, there's almost a recognition between the two of them I I thought that's what they were going for that might just me be me but I felt like there was more of a, a finished story here plot wise than there was in the first film and I liked that um I do think that the other superfluous storylines kind of made this movie a little bit crowded. And at an hour and 47 minutes, it's the longest of all of these movies that we watched. And I felt that. But I got a couple jumps out of it. And I wasn't
1: bored. I was engaged by it. In a way, I just wasn't with Darkness Falls. I got a sense that one of the superfluous plot lines about the American family, there was something kind of cynical about that where... To me, I thought maybe they thought that their audience just wouldn't care very much if there was a ghost in Japan killing Japanese people, (laughs) right? Because this is the the final ending where that little kid... Uh, confronts Aubrey in the hallway of his apartment in America, and we learn that it's her. And he says, "You've brought the ghost to America." And like, yeah. okay, now finally, that's scary because it's in America. It's in America now, and that's of course where The Grudge Three takes place entirely.
0: The the first film and a half took place, you know, where the where the story originated but they eventually bought it I'm sure for budgetary purposes um, back to the excited states right uh, and yes so that they can they can stare. you know they can justify the fact that the cast is entirely uh, Caucasian in a world <laughs> that is entirely not <laughs> so um, but again I don't want to overpraise the movie it's not like I'm foaming at the mouth excited to like you must see The Grudge 2, put it on your list of things to do. But in this stack of movies,
1: uh, I I didn't think it it loudly sucked. No, and it had gotten off to an inauspicious start with me, um, much in the way that the narration uh, voiceover at the beginning of Darkness Falls was a big red flag that maybe you're getting into something that you don't want to be getting into. Um, The Grudge 2, the first trailer, was for Ghost Rider. But okay, this is the caliber of movie that we're dealing with. We've got the same audience interested in both. Um, it was better than Ghost Rider. Uh,
0: So's Dental Surgery. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I thought the visuals were pretty consistently creepy. Um, I there was a few scenes that I thought looked really neat. The um, what's a woman from Flashdance? Right, the, the like Jennifer Beals. Yeah, Jennifer Beals pulling pouring uh bacon grease on her husband's head out of nowhere oh yeah that seemed like that would suck a lot yeah and then there was that other scene with that woman drinking the milk out of the container and she drank the whole container and then puked it back into the container and then re-drank it yeah that uh very strange
0: very strange yeah um again uh, uh, how well it all fits together i guess could be debated one thing i do like too is that uh the movie didn't pull any punches. For some reason, I was kind of surprised that the Aubrey character uh, died. Uh, they kill off the Sarah Michelle Geller character early in the movie, her sister. And this whole quest to see what happened to her sister, I guess I felt like we were going to be boiling towards like uh, a happier ending for her. And the fact that they didn't kind of surprised me, and I kind of liked that. You know, uh, She found out what happened to her sister, but <laughs> she died in the process.
1: Yeah, I didn't really find all that all that surprising. Um, I hadn't seen the, um, the American grudge. So the one that I had seen, uh, the original one, there's no equivalent of the Sarah Michelle Gellar character, so yeah. everybody just dies. Uh, so I was a little bit surprised to find out that there was somebody that had had some contact and lived. Yeah. This is
0: also a classic sort of horror movie sequel thing it's usually sort of a badge of a sloppy sequel because they didn't want to pay the, the, the stars to, to return to star again they, the, their agents now are asking for more money right. so they say okay well we'll just have you
1: here for a day and we'll kill you off this happens a, a lot in, in these movies. And her death struck me as actually being pretty abrupt. Yeah. Uh, that was a good surprise. Yeah. Not exactly a jump, but a, an interesting I wasn't moment.
0: surprised that she died, but I was sort of surprised how it played out, I yeah. guess. Yeah, no. yeah. The fact that she wasn't top billed sort of told me that Sarah Michelle Gellar wasn't going to make the end credits. Yes. <laughs> Uh, anyway, is there anything else we need to see about The Grudge 2? I liked it. It didn't make me I have to see The Grudge 3 right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, like you said, it was the longest of the movies uh, that we watched for this list and I think it might have felt like the shortest, hmm. so that's saying something. Not that it felt particularly short, but it didn't feel long.
0: It went down easy. Yes. special place in my heart especially 80s horror movies there's something about the special effects in those old movies that are like uh they're they're kind of crappy and awesome at the same time for me i mean they're very recognizably special effects but i kind of i heart them
1: (laughs) yeah i feel the same way uh i had never seen poltergeist 2 before but certainly poltergeist 1 has a very special place in my heart yeah but if if nothing else poltergeist
0: 2 i think brings this to the table that that sort of really charming old school 80s special effects sort of light show in a very basic way uh, as a sound off movie uh, it's a faint echo uh, or maybe fitting quote unquote tribute to the original poltergeist but the original poltergeist I I personally hold in high esteem but it's again one of these movies that I saw at a very young age and made a a, a pretty sharp impression Uh, looking at it as an older person yeah I can see it's a little dog-eared and there are problems but Looking at poltergeist 2, the other side, is a different animal altogether. I don't bring any real baggage to it. In fact, my memories of it were very, very vague. Uh, there was some Native American spirituality involved in it. It was basically my vague memory of it. Um, yeah. So I'm happy to say that I don't think it's a wall-to-wall catastrophe. But it is bizarre. There is a charming sort of 80s to this movie and in that sometimes the eighties qualities of the movie will overtake it and become so distracting that it's hard to enjoy. This sort of lands in that sweet spot where it's 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 charmingly nostalgic.
1: Yeah, there's something sort of innocent about, you know, seeing a young bemulleted Craig T. Nelson <laughs> before he became a Fox News pundit. Yeah. Uh, when he spends his time with his family, he seems like a charming guy and, you know, the family seems charming in that 80s made for tv movie kind of way
0: yeah yeah he really does honestly project like this this loving wholesomeness like he really he is a good actor because i know in real life he <laughs> seems to be nothing like that at all but uh i actually do think he gives a good performance in it and uh whether or not this was a paycheck production nobody in the cast seemed to treat it like that everybody here was trying um
1: there's actually a good scene um we're going um later on there's uh, a scene where he gets possessed by the bad guy and we'll get into that mm-hmm. um in a bit but when he's doing his he's sort of channeling um this actor julian beck yeah. and i thought he did quite a good job actually with his mannerisms and his the cadence of his voice i thought i have never seen coach act before but <laughs> yeah. it looks like he's okay
2: You
0: do get the feeling like this is Craig T. Nelson before the weight of the world crushed his spirit, don't you? (laughs) But I think everybody is is pretty good. I think Joe Beth Williams returns and does a good job. Um, The movie picks up fairly directly after the original one. Their house has been destroyed and the entire area where they lived has now been sort of barricaded off and has become the site of this... Dig for paranormal research and study, presumably.
1: Yeah, and I thought there was a, an absolutely charming scene. It was a throwaway, so it didn't have to be there. But um, when they were trying to get the insurance money to pay for their house that had been ghosted into uh, another plane of existence, and uh, the insurance uh, company was not paying out because they just their policy didn't cover ghosted into another uh, plane of existence. But you know that. Well, would... I
0: wonder how much that coverage would cost.
1: You're thinking month. about getting there? I'm now, thinking about it. You're yeah. a homeowner? <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I
0: I want my house to be here for the long haul, so... Obviously, they understandably need to re- relocate. They have no home, but they don't have any money, and they've fallen on sort of desperate times, and they've ended up living with uh, Joe Beth Williams' mother to sort of uh, pinch the pennies and sort of re, re- basically restart... So the family dynamics is still there, still solid. The the surviving cast has returned. Of course, at this point, the actress who had played the eldest daughter had died, uh, feeding to the myth of this whole poltergeist curse, where every movie people seem to have bad luck and deaths seem to accrue. Uh, kind of a an icky way to market your movie (laughs) but not they at least it's not new to poltergeist this is something that a lot of horror films have sort of tracked we're dealing with a supernatural subject so uh we've stepped into a domain we shouldn't have and have been punished for it the what i did like is that the family was back and and that that sort of feeling was a sort of spielbergian love was still there they didn't change things up they didn't do the typical 80s sequel thing of going darker and dumber, right? I guess maybe darker.
1: (laughs) Yeah, in some ways darker, in some ways not so dark. Um, So in the first one, when I was a little kid, there was a scene, I I saw it on my seventh birthday, there's this horrifying scene of a guy looking into the mirror as his face rots off. (laughs) And they decided, I guess, to reprise that in Poltergeist 2, but it was this ridiculous scene where the kids' braces kept growing and then they got wrapped up by the braces monster. Um, I I don't know that I would call that darker. Yeah. It's definitely strange. Pee-wee's Playhouse version of Poltergeist activity. Strange
0: to the point of absurd, and they revisit this later with the worm and the tequila, I think. Right. Um, We've still failed to really get into the plot. It's a little bit convoluted, so I'm going to attempt it. They're living with, like I say, Jo-Beth Williams' mother, who we find out is clairvoyant and has been the whole time. But uh, in this way, there's a special bond between Carol Ann and her grandmother. The evil spirits who were very attracted to this powerful psychic, Carol Ann, have not stopped being attracted to her, and the fact that she has moved away has not been problematic. This one powerful spirit, um, played by the late, great... Julian Beck. Thank you, uh, has tracked Caroline down, and uh, presumably, much like the first movie, wants to possess her to make himself more powerful. We find out through the story that he was the leader of a doomsday cult, and that he and all of his followers buried themselves alive right around the site of where their house was. And the typical battle then ensues for the family to wrestle caroline away from the evil spirits yeah that's the basic plot of the movie we do get into some native american uh spirituality with the uh inclusion of uh will samson, will samson. um he sort of takes up the tangina role she's also in the movie but uh she plays a much smaller role in the scheme of things so yes, very familiar ground, but we are in sequels. We, we came here expecting that. What worked and what didn't?
1: <laughs> um, well, probably one of the few things that worked besides the general charisma of the family, which wore thin pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> you're sort of onside and then maybe a little bit too onside. It's felt like a bit of a milk commercial after a while. Um, but Julian Beck, as the villain or the ghost, uh, was perfectly cast. I think he and his agent must have been really excited when they get this script that calls for this living, walking scarecrow of a man with a naturally baleful face. Like I, I can do that. Nailed That's exactly it. how I am.
0: Well, there is a scene of confrontation at the, the front door of the house where he's basically demanding to be let in. Which, I gotta say, it was probably the one scene in the whole movie, but I I straightened my back in my chair, and I was like, that's creepy. That is a creepy scene. A lot of the other scenes, they're going for (coughs) scares, but like I say, it kind of tips on over past creepy into just weird (laughs) and abstract. But that scene of him demanding entrance, and that sort of weird vampiric sort of angle that he can't really get in and fuck with them without being somewhat invited, and he ends up sneaking in the back, door using the sin of alcohol,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, and I think the movie would have done really well if it had traded in a lot of... I don't know what the monsters were made of. They're like Muppets, like, I don't know, these sort of grotesque puppets. They weren't even all that grotesque. They reminded me of a toy from the 80s called Boglins. Yeah, I don't know plastic what Plastic, monstrous things. They, they were whatever the opposite of scary is they looked (laughs) dumb Uh, they were not helped at all by the the braces scene which looked like um kind of california raisins christmas special stop motion animation uh, with a little classical animation drawn onto the frames everything about those monsters didn't work um, which is such a shame that they had this naturally horrific looking person Mm -hmm. Why not just do more of that and he
0: was scarier than any of the special effects that was all performance and uh, Bravo to it as things progress. Uh, we see him in stranger and stranger situations I think we should talk about the Craig D. Nelson possession scene because I think that's really what the movie's working towards there's a lot of false scares sort of leading up to it like the braces scene thing. but uh, Really, I think that's when the movie kicks into high gear <laughs>
1: Sure, do you want to talk about it or
0: well? The amount of stress that the Craig D. Nelson character's been in is obvious. They establish it early in the film, and he is trying to put a happy face on it. But as shit continues to get real, you know, uh, it's it's hard for him to deal with, and he eventually... Does the classic sort of movie family, the worst crime that a, that a dad can do in like a sitcom, which is get drunk and yell at the kids I've <laughs> seen. Um, well, he but,
1: doesn't even yell at the kids until he gets possessed. That's true. He it's just true. drinks tequila.
0: But somehow the, this evil entity manages to sneak into the worm in the bottom of this tequila and uh, he consumes it and is possessed by it. And like you say, his performance of uh, the possession, Crazy Nelson, as much as I think the guy's a dick. Really good acting, <laughs> and uh, but there's this really bizarre moment where he, uh, in order to expunge the spirit, literally vomits out this monstrous thing. <laughs> <It's> like,
1: <laughs> which was actually a charming movie. That's uh, I've got in my notes uh, that at that point it felt a lot like Evil Dead Two or maybe Army of Darkness. So that particular. Puking up the tequila worm was one of the high points in me, even though it was not scary whatsoever.
0: But I agree with what you said then out of a different movie right like it seemed like this scene was supplanted from a much weirder even like naked lunch type of movie you know that you would not bring the kids to and i'm still flabbergasted that this was sort of aimed at the family audience because this movie is pretty bleak and dark in a lot of ways
1: was it i don't know the uh climax where they go into the original house where their hole had been Uh, swallowed up into and then i I still don't really get what was happening but they were just flying around in that olden days special effects where they were obviously just standing in front of a green screen and then they had a sky superimposed behind them and then some monster flew past them and they used their family power like it it got it started out as what felt like a made-for-tv movie and then had some potentially interesting moments with the um, the ghost villain, got weird, and then just got dumb in a Disney way. It, it felt like something like The Flight of the Navigator, when <laughs> back in the 80s when Disney was doing a lot of live-action movies. Yeah.
0: there's the, They were trying new things. Whether they worked could be debated, but up until the climactic sequences of this movie, they were at least trying to do new things. I found, strangely, a lot of the Native American spirituality just seemed a little bit awkward and forced and didn't feel genuine. In fact,
1: I think... uh, I appreciate how respectful you're being with Native American, but you probably Mm -hmm. should say Indian, because I (laughs) think it captures the nuance of that character (laughs) and those elements. But
0: you think, like, with Will Sampson, that they they were probably, at the time, taking it seriously, but it it just... It feels like they're playing make believe, and it feels a little condescending. Whether or not it was, that's how it came
1: across to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I have lots of notes about that at the beginning, how tacky it seemed. But there was uh, one conversation where Craig T. Nelson said he didn't. I don't have a problem with quote these people, <laughs> and I've read "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee," um, and I I actually wasn't sure if that was the movie being kind of funny in an ironic way or just being more clueless politically
0: yeah it seems like it'd be almost too smart for the rest of the movie to match so i'm leaning towards the latter
1: unfortunately (laughs) I read very My heart at wounded knee. It seemed like too far. Like <laughs> yeah. just nobody could say that without realizing that that's what a racist would say. I
0: am absolved because I read a book. Yeah. <laughs> Ergo, you people are okay. <laughs> These people. <laughs> These people. You people would be racist. Yeah. <laughs> it's
1: quite confrontational.
0: Where I was going with is that at least they were trying new things. They were doing weird, maybe not particularly effective things, but they were trying new things. But by the third act we're back to the first movie they're sucked into the other side the power of the family keeps them together the biggest added wrinkle to that climax is as I've said before uh, the really annoying fact of a character who has died the grandmother coming back to guide Carol Ann back to her family I've said it before I will say it again if you kill off a character in your movie and that character's ghost comes back to save the day It's going to piss me off. And unfortunately, this is not the first time this is going to happen in this series of movies. (laughs) But it's just a device that pisses me off. I can think of exactly one film where I gave it a pass so far in my life. But it just it's, it's like every time the writer gets there, they're like, No one will see this coming. But it's done every fucking time. So as far as I'm concerned, everyone should see it coming.
1: I have a note here, actually. After the grandma died... Um, that and the haunting really started. It could have actually worked if the grandma was haunting them. <laughs> Everything, that would have been a surprise. That uh, this would ha- be a
0: better poltergeist, too. Jo Beth Williams' mother never liked Craig T. Nelson, and she died and decided to haunt them to, to, to break the family. <laughs> that would have been an interesting poltergeist. Or maybe you just
1: become a dick when you're a ghost. Like, who knows what goes on on the other side. At the end of the day I think the argument could be
0: made much like with jaws or like really solid box office success horror movies that the best case scenario would have been to not make a sequel to poltergeist 2 is this a debacle not quite is it good not
1: quite <laughs> See I don't know like I would say it's not a debacle because there nobody ever really had anything invested in it right uh, I think it was cheaply made um, probably nobody had expectations, but it's bad. Like there's, there's, it doesn't have much going for it. Um, so if it's not a debacle, it's whatever is just one notch short of a debacle. It's an '80s horror sequel. Well, and it was um, made during that time. Probably the low point in cinematic history for sequels. That the time, I guess, between Jaws two, and I don't know when sequels started people started putting effort into them but every sequel made in the 80s was terrible. It was like just exponentially worse than yeah. it should have been.
0: Ghostbusters 2 or anything yeah. like that yeah. We'll just have a, a faint faint photocopied version of what was successful and we will make money off of it. We'll know it's shit but we'll make money. Yeah. At some point people started to care and unfortunately we weren't there yet with Poltergeist. <laughs>
2: yes.
1: Look at that. What is that?
2: Looks like a triangle with a circle in it. Right
1: there, that's it. What does it mean? He does not like you. What? Who doesn't like me? You'll find out. Wyatt, you need to tell me what's going on. I don't want you to get
0: hurt. Paranormal Activity franchise, I think, is actually, as horror franchises go, kind of interesting. Um, So far, to me, it's got a little bit of an Indiana Jones vibe in that every other film seems to have been good, the odd-numbered films, for the most part, in my experience, being better than the even.
1: So that means that the only one that I've watched... Uh, by that reasoning is Paranormal Activity in the Crystal Skull. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: this is where Crystal Skull would fall into it. And I don't think that this movie is the debacle that most people would say Crystal Skull was, um, but I do think that it, it is a somewhat problematic entry in the series. I don't think it's awful. I think that it, it it just it is another Paranormal Activity movie. It doesn't really add anything to it and it kind of repeats stuff that has happened before. And as I said to you before we were going to review this, I I hate taking that kind of baggage into the movie because I shouldn't necessarily need to compare this movie to all that came before it. I should be able to just judge it on itself. But they've done this scenario better within this series. Would be my bullet point when I get to talking about this. The co-directors, Henry Joost and Ariel Schulman, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, I was happy to hear they were returning because they did Paranormal Activity 3. And I think that arguably has some of the scariest moments of the entire franchise. But, I think that this might be a problem of the speed with which they're trying to crank these movies out. Because a year from the release, almost to the date, of Paranormal Activity 3 hitting the theaters, here comes Paranormal Activity 4. And with the same people involved in the writing and directing of both, they were doing this at a dead run. (laughs) At a dead run. They would have to have been. So I understand where the problems came from. What's interesting to me is that Matthew has not seen any of the other Paranormal Activity movies, so he comes in here pure, like an innocent child. That's right. <laughs> and uh, I am interested to hear what he has to say, having come in from nowhere.
1: Um, yeah, I, I was a little bit confused by what was going on. O- on the whole, I thought it was fine. Um, I, It wasn't hilariously awful like darkness falls it wasn't particularly good not particularly bad um there were i thought it was good with jumps because it's all like it will be somebody talking to a computer on skype and then something happening and it was a false jump and and that sort of happens a lot that was the rhythm of this show and some of them were actually good jumps sometimes i did uh i did get startled I was a little bit curious if that was what the Paranormal Activity franchise is all about. It's just a series of false jumps and then something happens at the end, or if that's just what this one was. I would
0: say that the template is absolutely sort of established at this point, and that it's a series of spooky events that escalate. We start typically small, a little thing moves, or uh, something inexplicable like a door. And we get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, what they try to do with the, the new entries is find new ways to show us the ghost. The most obvious and distracting in this one being Xbox Connect, which this movie seemed to be in some ways an elaborate advertisement for <laughs> at times.
1: Oh, I didn't mind the Xbox Kinect <laughs> ghost, actually.
0: It's funny that it, there, were, there was a time in my life where this kind of clearly blatant uh, <laughs> product placement would have really distracted me. But it is kind of cool, the way the Kinect the scans the room and it sort of makes a little dot grid of everyone in the room, and that it seems to recognize the ghost. <laughs> um,
1: now, one of the things about this movie starting slow and then getting bigger and bigger, I, I don't know if the other ones do this, but this movie actually started big. It started with maybe one of my favorite deaths of any of the movies that we've uh, watched for this podcast, but with some woman, I guess these must have been familiar characters from another movie and some woman walks up to another woman and like punches her across the room, but mm-hmm. in a way that it looks like it would really hurt to get punched across the room, <laughs> like it didn't look comical
0: Yeah, and then what you were looking at there is basically a clip show of events that happened in Paranormal Activity 2
1: Okay, so you had already seen that scene? I had
0: already seen that scene yes, they were just orienting you um, Basically the plot is An unreasonably attractive but inappropriately young teenage girl (laughs) and her family uh, have a new neighbor that moves in across the way. And viewers who are familiar with the Paranormal Activity series will recognize them to be Katie and Hunter. Um, Katie has been possessed by uh, evil and has stolen hunter from her sister and killed her sister in previous movies spoiler 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 <clears throat> um but we know this we know that there's something sinister across the street right away and i'm sure it didn't take long for you to figure it out um and that, that's what i liked about some of the scares in this movie too i really f- like my least favorite thing as a rule i don't like false scares like you keep telling a story and if you stop for five minutes to set up a false boo i hate you and if you stop for five minutes to start a, a false boo that involves a cat, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I just... I, 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 it's retired. Done. Don't do it. But it's interesting because what we see is that we get false scares just seeing this little kid in a place that he shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, just the fact that he's there is scary. This little six-year-old is in the top of this treehouse at two in the morning by himself. And they don't expect to see him there, and they turn the corner, and just him being there? Scary. And some would argue that it's a false scare, but I, it isn't, you know?
1: <laughs> well, and Part of it is the nature of the medium, or whatever, because so much of this is viewed through... Skype or something yeah. like that. They're taking their laptop around, so always most of the things aren't in the frame, which automatically creates this tension. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I thought the I thought they handled the creepy kid quite gracefully because you can get a little bit heavy-handed with creepy kids. Uh, perhaps if that one guy mentioned fewer times that this kid is creepy. Mm -hmm. We already kind of got it. You don't have to
0: tell us. We're watching a creepy movie with a creepy kid. Thank you. Thank you. There's also, I thought, a really good sort of suspense in a sort of pendulum sort of way with the, the dropping knife sequence.
1: Oh, I totally forgot about that. Do you
0: know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, there's a, a knife just lifts off the table, and you, you spend the whole sequence waiting to see when and if it drops. And uh, it does drop, and you get a little jump out of it, but the, the weight of that suspense makes that whole scene, which would otherwise be kind of a no, have all this extra weight to it. And this, these are the things that they've taken from the previous movies and that, that work pretty well. Um, they just didn't reinvent the wheel at all for this movie. Um, the where they were trying to add stuff to, like I said, it would be the the connect Vision and the Skype would be the two extra angles. Basically, in the previous movies, we either had people who were smelling a rat and trying to document the stuff, or they just had pulled security footage. Okay. Uh, I think an interesting question that I hope that this series gets into at some point is who is assembling this footage. <laughs> Uh, we don't know, but uh, there's a series of these tapes now, and uh, of seeing how this paranormal activity has affected these families. And is it this weird coven thing that we're introduced to? Where are these tapes coming from? I yeah, hope that, that I, gets explored.
1: I would imagine that coven that... I mean, what do they do all day? <laughs> they just show up in the last scene to kill everybody, so I guess they have lots of time on their hands.
0: <laughs> um. But, yeah, uh, the ever-escalating scares which leads to violence and death is absolutely the same template of paranormal activity. And I think that, uh, especially parts two and four, you could almost lay on top of each other. And in a lot of ways, Blur Your Eyes, The almost the same film, four has more involvement with this creepy little kid. In the second movie, of course, he's just a baby. And uh, we see the events leading up to him being kidnapped by, by Katie.
1: I was... Struck by the fact that it's oddly pointless, but I'm not sure if I hate that or not. Um, in that way, it's actually very similar to The Grudge, at least uh, Juan and The Grudge 2, which are the two that I've seen. In that, I guess it sort of thumbs its nose at the Aristotelian story structure where there needs to be a beginning, a middle, and an end, mm-hmm. because there was actually no point of any of the middle of this film. Um, they could have cut that whole, everything out, basically, and nothing would have changed. Like, there's no, the characters don't grow, there's no, uh, they don't solve a mystery, they don't try to solve a mystery. Um, It's just, it it reminds me of um, when I was a little kid, I used to tell ghost stories with my friend five or six years old. uh, And his ghost story, the first one he invented is one day there was an old lady and a ghost jumped out and killed her. Um, And that could sort of be the plot of this. One day (laughs) there was a family and then a ghost jumped out and killed them.
0: And that's where I talk about the inevitability of where this is going. Uh, Knowing where we are in the paranormal activity world and knowing how these movies work, I had no reason to think that anybody in this family was going to make it to the end Credits and none of them do i was not surprised by that and moreover some of the deaths that we see we, we are witness to we've seen before there's a neck, neck snapping which seems to be katie's preferred method of execution uh it's sort of well done like the shots well done and fairly convincing but we've seen it before yeah. or the woman being lifted and dropped again as yeah. an element that we have seen before
1: the guy getting pulled down the hallway into the darkness. I think I've seen that in a lot of trailers for yeah. various movies.
0: So they didn't reinvent the wheel in particularly for the end. The only added wrinkle that they have here is all of these bizarre women that we see all over the place. So that this evil is being served by some sort of human contingent now as well.
1: Well, yeah, apparently there are... Because the two kids were adopted. So maybe there are these adopted kids all over the place. So there's... Um, For those that haven't seen it, there's the creepy kid that we've mentioned, but he befriends the young child in the family who actually does live because he becomes the creepy kid, presumably from Paranormal Activity 5. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was adopted so... Perhaps he was getting reclaimed by this coven of witches?
0: They're perhaps... they're they're making a whole generation of these little possessed demon childs. I don't know, and presumably as the series progresses on we're going to be shown more and more. But they're not adding very much new. The percentage of new to Paranormal Activity 4 is shockingly small. But I'm I'm going to say it's enough that I'm still kind of curious to see Paranormal Activity 5.
1: Yeah, I I mean I've got to note that um, the fact that there's no narrative arc in Paranormal Activity four for since I hadn't seen the rest of them I found a little bit off putting. But if it's a piece in a larger puzzle and maybe there's you know they've got some arc <clears throat> mapped out one you know one through ten and this is an integral piece, <clears throat> I think that that could actually be brilliant. Uh, I'm not sure how much faith I have how long they can keep it going but I'm also it bugged me at first that there was no arc but it's been bugging me a little bit less the more that I've been thinking about it because if the movie is about following mostly following this adolescent girl through scary situations and being creeped out then it does a good job of that Um, and I think it might just be Part of a larger trend that's going on now towards sort of cynical, nihilistic storytelling, mm-hmm. the same stuff that works so well for me in things like Game of Thrones or No Country for Old Men, that mm-hmm. maybe the hero's journey, you know, Robert McKeon um, style of tor- storytelling is sort of getting played out. And there's just for whatever reason, it's it, it's uh, appropriate for this moment that there just isn't hope or agency the things just happen
0: i never had any any belief in me at any point that this family was going to survive the second that their neighbors moved in across the street second i knew i was watching a paranormal activity movie at this point it would be changing it up if one member of the fucking household made it out alive right <laughs> so
1: i i have to say our protagonist had survivor written all over her there was just something about her that I thought she might make it out. Obviously that guy that was either her friend or her boyfriend wasn't going to I think it live. was her chaste boyfriend. <laughs> um, her parents were obviously doomed, yeah. but I, I don't know. There was just something so pure and bright about her face that I thought maybe she'll make it.
0: I tried not to look too closely. Um, <laughs> the thing is is that for a movie with the number four at the end of it, this isn't bad once you're getting this deep into a franchise it's not easy to keep things fresh and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that I, I, I mean it's good enough it's not a horrible movie um, but there are better chapters of Paranormal Activity before and after this one
1: well, um, Paranormal Activity 4 was better than Poltergeist 2 so. <laughs>
0: High praise in the
2: yeah. I'm so sorry.
0: Okay, the time has come and this is this is what I think people have been waiting for. Would be uh, us discussing White Noise Two. This makes this a proper sequel to your first guest appearance on the show.
1: Yeah, I actually think this should be the White Noise Two podcast. Podcast,
0: Really, this is what we've all been leading up to, and uh, J. Adrian Cook is with us. He watched the film with us, so uh, we might get some of his thoughts as well. Because I don't think two brains are enough to process everything that we get thrown uh, in this film. But Uh, beginning
1: with the title, White Noise Two, the light. That really makes you think.
0: About stuff. I've always liked light. <laughs> I mean, preferred it to the darkness, I guess.
1: <laughs> As with noise, uh, <laughs> it's something that excites one of your senses. Um, but, but what I would
0: like to say right out of the gate is one of the best things that White Noise 2 does is completely ignore everything that is established and really that happened in White Noise 1. I don't think anything that happened really has any impact on this film. I don't think any of those events are really made reference to.
1: Were there visible ghosts in White Mouse 1, Matt? There were, like, uh, staticky ghosts. The idea that you could
0: maybe hear or see ghosts through untuned television and radio frequencies was established. Other than that, they've taken nothing. And this is to the good, because as I think people can remember, we hated ways. <laughs>
1: Except I have a fan theory about a way that we might... A fan theory. I was doing scare quotations there. I have a fan theory about <laughs> how we might connect the two, but maybe before I get on to that, um, do we need to talk about a little bit of synopsis for the first one first, or just go to the second one?
0: Well, I don't know what more we would really need other than we, do, we find out we can communicate with the dead to detuned... A radio and, and televisions. I mean, other than that, the fact that Michael Keaton was on a quest to be reunited with his wife and ended up getting himself killed in the process is really redundant to any of the action in, this, in the sequel, right?
1: Right. Okay. Um, all right. So let's just talk about number two.
0: Number two. Well, here's the thing. It's, it's all right.
1: Yeah, it's not bad.
0: It's, it's actually good.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know
0: if we want to get ahead of ourselves. Okay, uh, whoa, 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 we'll put the brakes on here a little bit. Um, this, it's watchable. It's watchable, thank yeah. you. Maybe that's the word I was looking for. And um, I think that's maybe maybe the goal that the filmmakers set themselves. <laughs> Baby steps. So the Guys, third let's one make might something watchable. Be let's, let's, let's set the bar at watchable. <laughs> um, in order to help make it watchable, they uh, hired some eye candy. And by that I don't mean Katie Sackhoff, I mean Nathan Fillion, (laughs) our Alberta boy. Um, uh, I
1: really hope you guys get to kiss it. At some (laughs) point we're going to be cast as lovers, I think.
0: (laughs) I think we're going to do our own version of Brokeback. Brokeback the musical. (laughs) Because I don't know why that's not been made into a musical yet. I should copyright that. Um, Anyway, Nathan Fillion is the central figure of this film, and... uh, Here's what I'm gonna say, again, to the positive. I am fairly regularly surprised by the film. We know that this is about a person who is going to be seeing visions, and typically this comes out of a near-death experience. So in the opening of the movie, I'm waiting for something terrible to happen to Nathan Fillion. And to my surprise, something terrible doesn't happen to Nathan Fillion. Something terrible happens to his wife and child.
1: Well, that's not true, he gets shot. Oh, no way. He he tries to commit suicide, that's right.
0: Yeah, but at the beginning, we're we're sort of set up to think that Nathan Fillion's going to die, and there's a sort of sudden twist that I didn't anticipate, where his family took the uh, the Brunton's dead. And already, just a few minutes in the movie, I have been surprised. Already succeeding, where the original has failed. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah, and there were... uh Pretty quickly there were some honest-to-goodness jumps, Mm -hmm. which the first one didn't really have, so that was good.
0: Because Nathan Fillion was dealing with loss, but uh, not in the process, neglecting his family and being otherwise just kind of a general dick, we could sort of like him and feel sympathy for him and maybe want things to work out. And uh, as the plot continues, he's not just able to see and communicate like we saw the Michael Keaton character in the first film, he himself is a receiver. He can see these ghosts at any time and any place. And further to that, he suddenly seems to have the ability to predict if someone is about to die.
1: Yes, they glow uh, bright yellow, uh, and then he figures out that he can actually prevent their deaths, and then they stop glowing. But it doesn't end there. What? By the way.
2: Already
0: narratively way more complex than the first movie, though, right? <laughs> because,
2: you see, there's a, there's a dash of final destination in this film as well, because uh, after three days he discovers the people that he's rescued turn evil and start going on murder sprees unless they are stopped and killed.
0: Which was another fairly surprising angle to the movie that I didn't necessarily predict. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, for all of this... Goodness that I would say in the concept in the storyline. There's something undeniably sort of cheap and made-for-TV feel about this movie There's like
1: well, it was filmed in Vancouver, which is never a good sign <laughs>
0: <laughs> It is the place where you go to shoot a movie cheaply like uh, That's true, but I like I think you said while we were watching it They don't really necessarily hide the fact that it's Vancouver It's, it's open about it and they try to use the depressing rainy landscape to their advantage. And within the environment, they found a couple of sequences which I thought were well executed and that I hadn't necessarily again seen before. There's a scene involving an accident with a grand piano being pushed from a a second floor of a hotel and dropping down on the diners below that, uh, as a sequence, I thought was pretty well handled and fairly original. And again, I was kind of blindsided by that because I wasn't expecting it. This is a movie that I bought almost as a joke on myself. <laughs> oh my god, i thinking, someday I'll do this for the podcast and I will kick myself for it. And uh, yeah, the presence of Nathan Fillion and Katie Sackhoff, is nice to see them, but they're certainly not a guarantee of quality, are they? <laughs> so how much of me liking the movie was it just being... Not so much it being an amazing movie, but just being way better than it had any business being, or than I expected it to.
1: Yeah, and I think that should have been its tagline. It's just better (laughs) than it has any business being.
0: (laughs) Again, but uh, I don't want to oversell Light Noise 2 either, because it does have an angle to the plot, which we've already discussed, which drives me crazy. In which a character who is killed off comes back as a ghost to save the day. This is another element that we see again repeated here in White Noise 2 to my frustration. But by the time we see that, I think it's one of the cases where the movie has been good enough that I kind of forgave it uh, that little beat at the
1: end. Yeah, it was this scene that didn't really need to be there, but whatever. I
2: found actually that that one scene ruined the whole movie for for me. Um, It made me question the the reason why the visible ghosts were in the movie in the first place because we see them standing around looking scary throughout the movie and at one point one of them ghost punches Nathan Fillion and he falls down (laughs) and doesn't die and then as soon as near the end when Nathan Fillion ghost punches um, Katie Sackhoff we realize oh okay those ghosts are around to let us know that ghosts can ghost punch people and so the ending doesn't seem cheesy and dumb and fake anymore
1: it just rang very hollow actually i had um a, a, another s- sort of simple moment that ruined a lot of it for me uh, it's sort of uh, rendered the plot kind of useless. Uh, And it actually suffers from a similar drawback as the Patrick Swayze classic Ghost Mm. starring uh, Jerry Award-winning actress Demi Moore, if you'll recall. (laughs) Um, But in White Noise 2, Nathan Fillion commits suicide and he's going up to heaven and he sees his family and it's really happy and it's great and it's heaven. And then he comes back. And he's seen heaven, but now he wants to stop people from dying, even though heaven's like awesome. What-
0: yeah, it seemed like he made the right choice there by killing himself, I guess, if there was that happy ending waiting for him. And really, everything that happened to him from that point was devastating to him and everyone around him. Well, only, it like, would have been better for him and everyone else had he successfully committed suicide. So is this a pro suicide?
1: But it's not <laughs> even <laughs> it's not even that. So we'll just say that he didn't you know, his suicide is not successful. But the rest of the movie is motivated by him wanting to save people's lives and then the fallout to that. But if you've seen heaven and now you know that heaven is a thing, yeah. why would you care to save anybody's life?
0: And if people light up like bulbs when they're about to die, particular presumably that means it's their time it is something that has been preordained so yeah well we learned that there are repercussions to saving the people as as j adrian cook mentioned everybody that he saves turns evil three days later and it gets particularly complicated because this katie Sackoff character a nurse he's made some sort of vague emotional flirty smiley connection with She's
1: like the least charming manic pixie dream girl ever. (laughs) There's just something not pixie about her, so it doesn't work. But she totally is trying to play that.
0: Uh, The whole thing is this nervous, giggly energy, which Katie Sackhoff does all of the time. It's Katie Sackhoff. No, but like, maybe
1: I'll stop by your house with some cheap wine. Isn't that whimsical?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um... (laughs) For the good turns that the script takes, and they do take a lot of them, I got really frustrated with the way that we were being spoon-fed all of this information. They were making sure that everybody understood what was going on, including Grandma in the back of the theater who was actually asleep. Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 he collects the book from the man who had shot his family and finds out that his story mirrors his own. This guy had cheated death and was trying to do what he was, and... Uh, if not for him shooting his family, his family could have at that moment turned on him for all he knew. Um, but they show the tactic and they show the flashback, and they show Nathan Fillion pondering over it, and they, they ask you to put the dots together, and they take such a long time for it. For me, I knew right away what was going on, and the fact that they lingered on it for so long, painstakingly, over every inch of it, is it was just like... Please put the fast forward button Like, can we fast forward these scenes? You and know? he had
2: to delve into numerology himself in order to justify it. He, yeah. And we, we had it figured out, but uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. But it, it, you know, he had to sort through all these old texts and make uh, links to the bible in order for him to truly understand this is what was happening
0: and then over and above that they put visual cues when we are reintroduced to the savior person they will put a, an upside down cross in the frame to make sure we understand that this person is going to be evil give me a little bit of respect respect me enough to understand the story you are attempting to tell right
1: unless we fear that the uh Filmmakers respect this too much. There was a little girl in red at one point, <laughs> a Schindler's List and Titanic, and yeah. you know, everywhere else, cheap emotion is to be manufactured.
0: Yeah. There's some computer algorithm for it. some <laughs> inject archetypal female. Tra- yeah, it's, it's bad, and it's used here. And again, the same story told in a less sort of spoon fed way, I think would have been quite strong. I got the feeling like this script was probably not originally White Noise 2.
1: No, I'm sure it was a movie called The Light. Yes. It became White Noise 2, The Light.
0: Yeah, if some unproduced screenplay that they decided to throw this name to. Um, but it is... It is a much better movie than the first film, yeah. while not being a fantastic movie by any respect itself.
2: <laughs> I was going to say that, you know, for a movie you guys build as being watchable at the start of the review, it's the review's kind of turned sour. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but the story beats are strong. Like I say, the basic idea in terms of the plot work efficiently and not or, or, or work as a story it's kind of how the story is told that kind of frustrates it and then belies it but uh as a as a script it's probably the most complicated of any of the stories we've had except for maybe the grudge but is that a complicated story or just like no, that's a series of dead ends right so I mean I I can't completely dismiss it and, and just roll my eyes. I do think that they were going for something and that they were successful enough in that like I don't hate the movie, but I have a hard time saying, by all means go see White Noise too, <laughs> you know like.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good assessment. It's
0: you're on a plane, <laughs> <laughs> keep your earbuds in. You can keep. <laughs> Is there anything else we want to say about White Noise 2? Yeah, my fan
1: theory, how White Noise 2 could uh, fit in with White Noise 1. uh, One of the reasons why... Did White Noise 1 win the Jerry for the WTF last time? Yes, it did, because Because because, the
0: final scene was so inexplicable.
1: And there's a lot of inexplicable elements, including a serial killer that (laughs) just pops up out of nowhere. Right. But what if this White Noise 2 was like a prequel... And what we didn't see off camera is that the serial killer Let's had see. saved somebody's life before, and he was just serial killing this woman so she wouldn't become evil.
0: Well, I hate to to to, to shake down that, 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 that fan theory, because I know you're a big fan, but I think you're giving the first film way too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the this movie was probably made on that first film's catering budget, and... uh The fact that it's (laughs) so significantly better. uh, I gotta give it points for that.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, White Noise 2 is all right, Rave Smith. (laughs) Yes,
0: it's completely watchable. Stephen King has an a, a intense relationship with television. Um, famously, he says, where television uh, giveth, uh, it also taketh away, and that it gives him more time to tell stories in miniseries or film formats, but it takes away sort of his ability to say the F word and go to the level of violence and horror that you typically expect from him. Um, but in the early 90s, this was where King was big business in prime time. There was a whole series of not very good Stephen King adaptations, each one more popular than the last.
1: It must have started with IT, right? There was Golden Years.
0: IT, the Langoliers. Oh, the Langoliers, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then eventually leading up to The Stand and Storm of the Century and Rose Red, there's just, it goes on and on and on. Um, Earlier on here in this, uh, we have this adaptation of Something, Sometimes They Come Back, which is from his first collection of short stories, Night Shift. And I think, for me, one of the most problematic things that this film has to contend with, and it's a problem before any cameras roll, is that for me, this is every single almost cliche Stephen King thing wedged into one story. If there was a computer program designed to emulate a Stephen King-like short story, this random set of ingredients could be interpolated and spit out this movie, or this story. At the time he was writing the story, he was very young in his career, so you wouldn't really say he was ripping himself off, but this is sort of a, a real crystallization of something that he would go to again, and again, and again and I'm used up on it, and I'm wondering if I wasn't used up on it, would I have liked sometimes they come back more?
1: Well, I don't know if, I mean, he's got to be one of the most prolific writers of the 20th century, and he's got, I mean, he's had a billion things adapted, but he's had a billion things not adapted, Um, and really wonder why somebody decided that sometimes they come back would be, this is the one that we're going to be doing.
0: Apparently, originally it was going to be an installment in the anthology film *Cat's Eye*, which uh, Jay Adrian Cook and I reviewed. Um, but it was deemed at the time that it was too much story to shrink down into just one little segment; that it deserved a movie of its own. Really? There was almost no story. To that it. was an error in judgment, because in order to stretch this even to TV length, because this was made for television, uh, they they stretch it past the point of comfort. Level. <laughs> Um, and what the familiar elements that I could say, I will describe this plot and it is the plot of many Stephen King stories. A man having suffered a traumatic childhood event in which he lost his younger or his older brother returns. And I
1: think he lost his older brother after there was a scene where his older brother said something like, we're going to be best Best friends friends forever." forever. Yeah,
0: more or less. Um, so we fast forward 30 years later and this is a teacher and writer who returns to the small town and goes to get a teaching job.
1: And is it ever really explained why he decides to return? Because he'd lived in Chicago for 30 years and had gotten married and had a child.
0: I think that this is a little bit more seeded in the story, and in a lot of ways it almost might be a test run of Jack Torrance's character in The Shining. Who is a teacher who has a lot of frustration and anger issues who has sort of ended up taking a job because he could <laughs> uh, and he's kind of washed up here but I can't remember the specifics of that in the story but this template again is a character that we'll see again and again the person who wants to be a writer but is teaching instead or is doing something else instead but these writers finding themselves in these supernatural contexts. Anyway, uh, he becomes a substitute teacher at the local high school and uh, any of the children or the students that he seems to make a connection with very soon after end up disappearing and being replaced by these greaser thugs who are the seeming living embodiment of his old bullies from his past. And uh, we well, have. To, yeah,
1: not even the seeming living embodiment, but they're just, just these them. people.
0: Yeah, but it, no one believes him, and is he going mad? Is he responsible for these deaths, or what is going on? And uh, basically, we go full circle to another great confrontation, and that's the events that this leads to. But like I said, this is something we'll see over and over and over again in Stephen King. It's exhausting to even spell it out. <laughs> What is his problem with greasers? Like, I have a joke that he was probably... Get, got the shit kicked out of him by some kid with a leather jacket and slicked back hair. But so many times the villain are these, like, not just bullies, but completely insane, giggling lunatics. Yeah, their
1: giggling was very off-putting. <laughs> yeah. It was very shrill. Uh,
0: and again, this is Stephen King. Like, his villains aren't kind of bad. There's like almost, like almost all of the books, there'll be one character who just is seethingly, puppy kickingly evil. Like, they live to cause misery to the world, and they don't even particularly take joy in
1: it. Well, these greasers, if I'm not mistaken, it's sort of implied that they've returned from hell, right? Because their car shoots flames out the back. Uh-huh. So we presume that they've been in hell. <laughs>
0: Well, and because they haven't aged and because they do terrible things, yeah.
1: Yeah, but they're not just ghosts, because yeah. ghosts wouldn't age, but they, I guess. But were they always evil? Like, they killed his brother at the beginning, but we get the sense that they didn't do it on purpose. Yeah. So had they just been kind of hooligans and then they died and went to hell and came back to
0: get him? I guess it's interesting that quotes sometimes they come back, but they never really explore why these guys come back. You don't know, why they somehow deserved or earned this, this attempt at vengeance for something that they posi- a position they put themselves in, you know? And, uh, yeah. Why is this death? Something that is a wrong that somehow needs to be cosmically righted. You know, I don't, I don't understand that aspect particularly.
1: Well, like why is their death or why is his brother's? Why death? do
0: they get special license to come back and, and, uh, seek vengeance? Uh, the mitigating factor here, there's a, in in the past, his brother is stabbed when they are being mugged by these guys while taking a shortcut through a, a train tunnel. And, um, in the scuffle, his brother is fatally stabbed, like I said, and the keys to the car get dropped and he kicks the keys out of, sort of, the reach. So, when the greasers go to get into the car to drive away, they have no means to do so and are subsequently killed by the oncoming locomotive. But, Considering everything that they did that they put themselves in that position that they came in that tunnel to torment and steal from these kids It's not like it was some wrong that was done to them that they deserved some cosmic reprisal like Why do they get to come back? maybe maybe this
1: is like um, Darkness Falls where he was to remember harder (laughs) because you know the title is sometimes they come back so maybe this happens a lot in this town and this is the only one that we're privy to.
0: It seems like he's the catalyst. His return brings us all about
1: somehow, but we're not really sure how, like. Well, they were, like, it was the big reveal towards the end that he had caused them to die, Mm -hmm. so maybe he came back and they saw a chance to get even or any number of things that we're not told.
0: He didn't do anything wrong, like, I don't know what lesson he was going to learn. is he still not able to let go of what happened to his brother? Did he feel responsible for it? I don't know why he would feel particularly responsible for those <laughs> evil bastard bullies being killed.
1: Yeah, it was his brother that wanted them to take the dangerous shortcut anyway. <laughs> he didn't yeah. have any responsibility. <laughs>
0: So, Survivor Guilt plays a part of it. Um, so, again, a lot of familiar elements not particularly inspired in the portrayal. Another heartbreaking element of the movie for me is Brooke Adams, who I love. She was in, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1970s version, and uh, Shockwaves, and there's another really obvious one that I'm thinking of and missing, but I... Uh, I've always been a fan of hers, and she is completely useless in this movie. Yeah. They, they really could have had a mannequin been fed at lines off camera. <laughs> like, uh, she has no real role to play in the movie. She is not even just a pretty face. She just.
1: She, she does a little bit of nagging later on, doesn't she? When he starts to be tormented by ghosts, yeah. that's her whole role in this.
0: And there's a brief scene of confrontation between her and the ghosts at the threshold of a church. Right. But
1: really i don't
0: i don't know how they talked her into the role she like she just she deserves better role than that she deserves a better movie than this so. well i
1: think this is sort of in this must have been filmed during the autumn of her career yeah. right her heyday was the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. so I, I think she's turning down a lot of roles yeah. at this point
0: but anyway, it just kind of sucked for me. It was like, because I, I like seeing a, a face that I recognize, that even in a movie I don't like. It's just sort of something for me to grab hold to that I can anchor to the movie, and then like, yay, there she is, doing nothing for another scene. Yeah,
1: but that wasn't unique to her. That that was pretty much the movie. Yeah.
0: The only points that I can really sort of say, with some measure, is that I was kind of surprised at the level of darkness that it touched on very suddenly. Everything felt really PG and TV. And then all of a sudden, there's a scene where they're throwing body parts out of the window of the car out into the into the river.
1: Yeah, that was my favorite scene. Uh, There was an absurd quality to it because it it reminded me a little bit of something out of the Muppets, maybe. Like these are (laughs) obviously not. It doesn't have a real body parts feel. That they're throwing them out. They look like they're throwing out dolls or something. Right. And they had cut them up using a switchblade. Into
0: millions of little pieces somehow. (laughs)
1: But at the same time, I, it was an enjoyable scene. It was done with a lot of love, and one gets the sense that they had fun doing it. Yeah. And,
0: and, yeah, in a way, just seeing that energy uh, injected into it, even for a moment, was kind of <laughs> refreshing. Yeah. Uh, I also like the scene where he says, all right, show them the face, where they sort of they, they look like their normal healthy cells, but they can choose to ch- churn into their sort of charred deformed versions and uh the sort of sudden changeover from sort of goofy uh teenage boy to this like full-out charred zombie was kind of jarring
1: yeah i liked that part as well um i liked it much more than the part where he got accused of the murders as (laughs) seems to be a a snore inducing plot point that is so common to hastily written movies
0: yeah And we'll see it again. Again, like I said, in Stephen King. The writer who uh, knows that there's something going on, but that at first they just think he's crazy and then think that he's guilty. I couldn't, like, there's so many that I'm not even going to start listing It happens a lot. Um, It also distracting, watching the movie is, and I guess it's not entirely its fault because it was clearly made for television, but these uh, awful insert commercial here moments uh, or where the movie momentarily resets itself (laughs) Uh, it's sort of a quaint thing that you won't see happen anymore i think that that's something that they've sort of steered away from and uh, definitely is part of what dates it to being a a movie of a different uh, cute kind of time if they were to make this movie today i could see this being like a hard r super brutal and then there's something sort of quaint and almost uh (laughs) Well, I was thinking about,
1: <laughs> this was part of my question earlier on about why they bothered to adapt this one anyway, and I think even if they did it now as a hard R, brutal, like I don't know what, with an Oz sensibility, it's still Greasers, yeah. it's still the least horrifying, imaginable monster that you could have, yeah. so how, how could this possibly be adapted?
0: Yeah. And there's I, I mean what I like about Stephen King is sort of beats of the story like I say a lot of times I'm not the the whole story being told within the gap of a novel I'm overall unsatisfied with but specific chapters of the story I find really scary and kind of brilliant um, this doesn't really have any of those things this is just sort of Stephen King on
1: autopilot <laughs> yeah and like the screenwriter on autopilot the actors kind of on autopilot the one that i did like shoot who's that actor he played larry on newhart right Um, he was the one of the greasers that hadn't died um when the rest of them did so he didn't go to hell he sort of lived a miserable life yeah and he gets recruited to help our hero um and i thought he did an admirable job with the material right but i mean he's always good
0: yeah but the, the once we get to that conclusion, it is nothing unexpected happens, and the things that do happen are really cheesy.
1: Like somebody that dies earlier comes back as a ghost to help him. Have I mentioned <laughs> that how much I hate that? <laughs>
0: That his older brother, who died 30 years later, suddenly shows up to save the day.
1: And... and in such a stupid way, because he returns as a 12-year-old who's still smaller than the greasers and gets beat up by them. So, and thanks, they Ghost. As
0: they sloppily sort of say, when one person goes, another can come back. If you wanted to use that as license to justify why the older brother, or now younger brother, Ghost, returns... I guess you could, but I don't think it speaks anything for the phantom locomotive, which subsequently comes and runs over the other ghosts.
1: Yeah, I think that was there maybe so there could be an emotional core in the climax, because there has to be a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. The m- movie had been setting up, although never explicitly, that a, r- a regular person has to die before a ghost comes back. Um, And then why the locomotive showed up. Uh, Maybe they had to reenact the tragedy of all those years ago.
0: Uh, It wasn't satisfying, nor was it unexpected. And then after, when it's all resolved and there's a tearful goodbye between, you know, our protagonist and the ghost of his older brother... I didn't care, I just wanted it to be over, (laughs) just roll the fucking credits, please, please.
1: I like that he sent his brother packing, it's like, he reprises the line from early on about how they'll always be friends, it's like, yeah, sorry dude, i got other stuff going on now, but...
0: I think my life is complicated enough to have to deal with a ghost brother, (laughs) so, uh, back to lonely heaven for you. Apparently heaven's not as good in this movie either, since he was so willing to come
1: back to Earth... (laughs) Well, no, he was in Purgatory, I think. Yeah, well, he, I don't know. Exactly... It was like a big glowing vagina that he walked out of. It was really vaginally shaped.
0: <laughs> Vaginarific?
1: Yeah. So there's that. I don't know. That doesn't really affect my ranking of the movie. It was just an odd effect.
0: There's something vaguely adorable about this movie and how TV and PG and... 80s, even though it's 90s, (laughs) feeling that it is. But I can't imagine a scenario in which I would recommend somebody spend their time watching it.
1: No, like you, because I'm sure it was airing on a Sunday night on NBC or something. Like yeah. you could watch 60 Minutes or something. Even if you're like a young teenager, watch 60 Minutes. Andy Rooney is more enjoyable. your time will be
0: better spent jerking off on the internet. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's just an example of just trying to sell anything under the title of Stephen King the the real sour grapes about this is this is a fairly faithful adaptation this is just a completely mediocre story told in a mediocre fashion in a mediocre medium
1: (laughs) yeah one of the things that you said about it being um said in the 90s i one of the things that i can cautiously say that they did well um is that things don't really look all that late 80s early 90s there's a certain classical style or sort of understated style so the shoulder pads and fluorescent green and stuff there wasn't a lot of that that was nice
0: well it's sort of something that sort of establishes period vaguely but it's not distractingly so like i say like when we talk about poltergeist 2 it was an 80s movie but it wasn't like intensely distractingly
1: obnoxiously
0: 80s but i mean that's us looking really hard for something nice to say
1: Oh, there was another thing. If we're looking really hard, it was one of those rare, there was one of those rare scenes where somebody wakes up from a nightmare and he doesn't sit up and gasp as nobody in the real world has ever woken up from a nightmare ever. So that was nice. He just opened his eyes and looked like he had been scared. So there's that. Good job. Yeah, actually, I changed my mind. Thumbs up. <laughs> that <laughs> That's good that tip. The balance.
0: <laughs> I was just right on the edge, and then that. so uh, now the hard part, brother. Now we gotta rank these fucking. <laughs> 30th episode of Rank and Review with me. I really appreciate it. The, one of the many crazy things about this list of mediocrity, I guess, would have to be honest about it, is that in spite of that, I found it really, really difficult to rank these movies. And it's not that I was, like, passionate about it, but nothing seemed to belong at number one in some
1: ways. Yeah, nothing really seemed to belong at number six. There are <laughs> a lot of senses in which They were all about as good as each other. You know, a couple sort of better. Um, Yeah. So my number six is not, like, monumentally worse than my number one. Um, But, you know... That's where you're putting it. These are in just sort of a cluster here. Um, Am I starting?
0: Uh, You're going to start for us, please.
1: All right. Well... um, I think it's significant that when introducing Sometimes They Come Back, you didn't say last but not least, because (laughs) I think clearly Sometimes They Come Back was the least of these movies. Um, My number five was difficult because if I had to suggest that anybody see one i would say number five darkness falls <laughs> because as far as the the scarier ones that are up top they're not really scary movies so i couldn't really recommend them but darkness falls was uh as uh j adrian cook said once uh, not in this podcast but at some other point it was unspeakably banal uh i rather thought it was hilariously awful so <laughs> it was kind of enjoyable uh number four i had poltergeist 2 which had moments and it had charm uh but it's it's not really a movie that you need to see um probably if you're a big fan of horror movies or ghost movies you'll want to see poltergeist 1 because it's a classic but poltergeist 2 it doesn't really have much to recommend it yeah at number three now we're in the top three uh this was three and two i was sort of going back and forth on but ultimately i would put white noise two at number three Mm -hmm. Uh, that was confusing yes white noise two is number three um a little bit heavy-handed with the exposition and just a little bit cheap shot in vancouver looking um Number two would be Paranormal Activity Four, which had some genuine um, jumpy moments, uh, a relatively charismatic family, at least with um, our protagonist and her friend. You sort of feel a little bit bad when they die, so you know there's some pathos that it it establishes, uh, and that would put at number one the grudge two, which does not is not hugely plot driven. <laughs> Uh, the reveals are not really all that monumental or revealing, but there are some neat scenes and, you know, some spooky moments, and it's all right. So,
0: wow,
1: that's my list.
0: <clears throat> Motherfucker, we're so close. <laughs> my heart is broken. <laughs> like, we're so close on this list. I almost want to just give you a prize. It was but... the three and two, right? <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, um, it was, I guess, three and four. I'll go through them here, but... Um... Oh, when you were going through it, I thought for a second there, I was like, holy shit, this will all be worthwhile if Matt <laughs> wins today. Oh my god. I have, I, I have them written down here, or else I might have cheated on your behalf. But sixth place, comfortably, strongly. Sometimes they come back. It's not just that it was made for TV and, and sort of lackluster. It's just like, there's nothing compelling you to keep watching this. Like, I can, I've said it before, it's sort of like the thing that. If you were watching it on TV, you could watch it with such disinterest that when the commercials came on you could forget what it was you were watching. Like even if you're like a Stephen King completist, like <laughs> put the case on your shelf and, and spare yourself actually sitting through it. So yes. Number five, we are again in agreement. Darkness falls. Uh, I think that that creature is kind of scary looking. And when she ghost attacks people, you could see little glimpses of how maybe someday this could be maybe a somewhat scary movie. But it's, like I said, I watched it twice and I was like killing myself to remember plot points. (laughs) Like, just basic stuff that happened in the movie. It's like so forgettable. (laughs) In fourth position, that's where I put uh, White Noise 2. Dang it! Dang it! um i put i don't know like i said it's just it's moving in slow motion i think that if they told the same story maybe a little bit more efficiently it would it would be better i like beats in it like i said the sequence with the falling piano and uh some of the real reveals i was genuinely surprised by i didn't think that the guy who killed his family and then subsequently shot himself was gonna show up again later in the movie and i didn't think that uh you know I was, I was sort of surprised by a few plot elements, so I'm giving it some points for that. Uh, I put Poltergeist 2 in third place, and I think this might be nostalgic charm that kind of caught me up to it. I mean, I know it's not a fantabulous movie, but I was surprised how much I liked it when I sat down to watch it now, because I was preparing myself for the worst. And again, that central performance by the villain, that uh, that actor, you know, it was his last performance, but he went out fairly memorably. Paranormal Activity 4 ranks at number two. It may be one of the weaker entries of the Paranormal Activity series, but it manages to be one of the strongest members of this collection of ghost movies. In its way, it's another Paranormal Activity movie. But I like the Paranormal Activity franchise, so that's enough for me. Maybe moot-specific, but it's ranking at number two may seem a little bit artificial. Like I say, I'm not passionate about it, but yeah, and we're agreed. And The Grudge 2 being number one. <laughs> Um, it gave me what the first Grudge movie didn't in that it was some kind of closure at the ending and, uh, some of the boost scare the work and, you know, it, it, it might be strange to the point of absurd and maybe more absurd than skilly, but uh, then or more absurd than, than scary, but the fact that a ghost attacks someone from their inside their bunny hug. i did
1: you just say scaly? Scaly? In re- reference to the one Japanese movie on scaly. the Saw so scary. Ra- racist.
0: <laughs> yes. It's a very scary gratitude. Doing that. <laughs> I apologize. Um, the bullet point here is this is a very mediocre list, and <laughs> The next time you do a ranking review, we're going to have to get you watching some quality films cuz this be bullshit.
1: Yeah, and I do think I should get a prize for how close I came. <laughs> anyway, we'll discuss that when the tape stops rolling. <sighs>
0: Before proceeding with the Jerry's, I would like to apologize for the uh, amount of racism
1: you may have heard in the previous segment.
0: Alright, well I am rolling, so uh, do you want to do these Jerry's up?
1: Okay, so what do I do? I say the category? I will... Jay
0: Adrian Cook is going
2: to officiate. Alright, so first of all, um, here are the rules. Larry, I will announce the category. Larry is going to guess the winner of the category if he doesn't he gets nothing but if he does he gets a haribo uh coke bottle oh one of the and he can consume it uh, whenever he wants to. one of
0: the coke bottles i purchased and
2: brought here one of your own coke <laughs> bottles is a reward all right <laughs> So, this
0: episode brought to you by Haribo Hoof Made You can really taste the hoof. Whereabo? Haribo. <laughs> Haribo. Again, so so so. So so
2: Stop doing that. <laughs> so the first category is best kill.
0: The best kill of these movies. Was, they don't know the character's name, but the guy who got attacked in the dark room in the Grudge 2. Fool! Uh,
2: well, it, the, the answer is, in fact, cutting up jock? Yeah, when they oh, cut up the sh- jock and sometimes they come present. back. I
0: don't deserve a Coke bottle, you're right. That was a much better death. Yeah. Okay,
2: so, uh, so the best creep out.
0: <laughs> That's a tough sell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, my attraction to the female lead of Paranormal Activity yes. 4 uh, would probably be my best creep out. Matt, would you like to change your answer? <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> creepy, you are a registered sex offender.
1: It's just regular. Um, oh,
0: God. there wasn't a, I guess I'm going to say the let me in sequence from Poltergeist 2 because that I thought was kind of creepy.
2: It turns out Matt was more creeped out by the kid in the treehouse from Paranormal Activity Four. Oh,
0: that was a good scene. Yep. That was a good scene. Yep. Fuck! I really wanted that coke bottle too. Oh man!
2: Oh, <laughs> well, okay. You have a few more chances here, though. <laughs> the worst performance.
0: Worst performance. Hmm. Hmm. That's a tough one. I don't know. Uh, there's nobody who's particularly memorable in Darkness Falls, but were there anybody who's loudly awful? Uh, I'm tempted to give it to Katie Sackhoff because I'm irritated by her, but I know that's not where we're going. Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, Three, two, two... Worst performance of this series of movies was the lead character in Darkness Falls.
2: Uh, apparently Matt disliked the laughing greasers and sometimes they come back mm. enough to give them an award
0: they were pouring it on pretty thick
1: I think you should, if you can sample some of that laughing right about now I mean it's hard for our listeners to fully appreciate how distracting that was Alright. I certainly it,
0: don't want to get in a copyright dispute with the makers if sometimes they come
1: back but I'm sure we will try if it's for instructional purposes yeah. it is it's, okay. it's, it's Here's how not to laugh, for
2: all of your aspiring actors out there. <laughs> uh, best performance.
0: Well, if memory serves, you destroyed this category by <laughs> spilling the beans, so I'm gonna go way out on a limb and say, just because you learned it out loud, Craig T. Nelson from Poltergeist.
1: Correct. I get a coke
0: bottle, and I earned it, which makes it taste all the better.
1: I, uh, of course, was tempted to um, put the villain from Poltergeist two, but I don't think I I think he just happened to look like a ghoul, and Mm -hmm. most of his work was already done. He would have been number two, but Craig T. Nelson's uh, impersonation of him. All right. Um, uh, we
2: also have the WAST kill, which I believe is supposed to be worst. And uh, yes, Matthew, by the way, is going for his PhD. <laughs>
1: the, the worst, worst kill <laughs> of these. He's going movies. for my PhD in spelling. <laughs>
0: um, Nathan Fillion's ghost, ghost killing Katie Sackhoff. Oh, that would be In been a good the Flight one. noise, too. As much as it was nice to see Katie die, it was kind of a contrivance of the plot. I don't know if I've mentioned, I don't like it when characters who die come back as ghosts and save the fucking day. <laughs> Make sure I, I mention that at some point in this podcast, because I'd like that message to come through. But you kind
1: of liked the movie Ghost. That was the whole premise.
0: The, the, he came back to Avengers Own Death? Yeah. Uh, I think
1: I, you I, just I got lawyered.
0: <laughs> Did I get lawyered? Uh, I typically, what well, I don't like it when they show up at the very last uh, at the beginning to sort of save the day. He wasn't a ghost for the whole movie. Is my point. Well, but we all know <clears throat> how much you like ghosts. So.
2: No, the, in fact, the wasp kill—the worst kill was the, kill? Was, uh, the uh, way the Tooth Fairy killed people in *Darkness Falls* by ghosting them. Basically, picking them up and taking them away, them away. Uh, cut away and then they fall down all bloody. It's basically the definition of, oh no, she got them, in the way that the boogeyman might get but somebody. Like,
0: again, missed Potential, what if she just raked all their teeth out and they were dropped yeah. and they were like, spitting out blood from their mouth and just incapacitated by the pain. Yeah. See, this movie's she, already better with my notes.
1: She just gets them. I'm mm-hmm. gonna get you. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. I got them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get you, kiddies. But no, it
1: wasn't like that. Okay. But was it the wust? <laughs> We'd say that
2: was pretty much the wast. <laughs> okay. Biggest unintentional laugh?
0: Oh, my goodness. Darkness falls in its entirety. <laughs> no, I, I'm biggest... I'm un- going to have to give that to you right <laughs> now. That was, the, that was actually it. There you go. <laughs> I get a Coke <laughs> Enjoy your Coke bottle. Um, I, I think that maybe the vomit monster in Poltergeist 2, uh, strange though it may be, <laughs> was... I, I, I could not have predicted that happening.
1: <laughs> yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that was sort of a... <laughs> <laughs> but no in
2: fact the award goes to all of darkness falls
1: i was right the first time yeah that's why
2: you
0: that's got why department. you got
2: the coke bottle i had to stop oh, it. should i give it back now
0: no 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 no
1: no that's no. 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 the people listening to the podcast can probably hear mm. you're enjoying the <laughs> coke oh bottle right into the microphone
2: oh. okay biggest what the fuck moment me
0: making matt watch these six movies <laughs> <laughs> Well, I gotta go back to the Vomit Monster again. I know I already nominated it, but I, I, guess, I guess the Vomit Monster.
2: Well, um, not having seen the movie, uh, Matt, was the person puking into the milk thing the Vomit oh, Monster? No, shit. the person
1: puking into the milk was... Uh, Grudge 2. But I wrote Poltergeist 2 so puking, i.e. So. <laughs> the Vomit Monster. Vomit
2: Monster! Very good. You get
1: another terrible couple. Oh. So not bad for uh, I mean, guessing I mean, my guess. We're guesses. on the same page. Um, I think part of it is that all of these or all of these jerrys were primed because there was so <laughs> few memorable moments in these movies that it was all stuff that we've discussed already. This might be the first time that that there's just nothing that hasn't.
0: But I think been it discussed. speaks to how mediocre these yeah. <laughs> mediocre movies were. <laughs> Um, there are much better horror movies to be watched. I mean, this is the these when you're watching these six movies and recording an in-depth podcast about them, you officially have a fucking problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm speaking on behalf of all three of us, <laughs> even though Jeremy only got half of these in his system. Um, yeah, you can do better for ghost movies than these. Yeah. Uh, final word. I'm gonna give it to you, Matt. Ah, uh, just you bastard,
1: I better get a better list next time.
0: So it was, we came to the end of episode 30 of Rankin Review. If you would like to send feedback, you can do so at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Also, please seek us out on Facebook, subscribe to the show, and if you leave us a review, preferably a four or five star review, um, that helps people notice the show, get us some more listeners. I hope you enjoyed episode 30 of Rankin Review, and I hope even more that you'll come back for episode 31. Thank you again from your host and Random Canadian, Larry Parsons.